0: Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students podcast. This week, Matt Densky continues our new series, Splinters of Doubt, and talks about self-doubting. We look at Matthew three thirteen through four eleven and how Jesus is tempted physically, emotionally, and spiritually, just like we are. Matt talks about how doubting ourselves can lead to doubting God—a dangerous slope to go down. But we can remember who God says we are and who God says He is. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, guys, welcome. Again, welcome to, uh, man, a great Sunday night here at Fellowship Greenville students. My name is Matt Dinsky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville, and I'm so glad that you're here. I'm excited you're here. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd also like to remind you of two truths, two things we always want you guys to remember. Number one, you are so incredibly loved, and I know you may not always feel like that, uh, but you are. And number two is that we believe you have a place to belong. We think that God has a place for you to belong in his family. We believe you can belong right here, and we want you to know that. We're excited that you're here. We love you, and we believe you have a place to belong. Last week, we began a new series that we're calling Splinters of Doubt. Kind of a thematic name, like a really dramatic name, man. But uh, last week, we talked about the idea of splinters physically. If you guys remember, when I was real young, I got a splinter in my hand, man, when I was in kindergarten. Um... But we know what to do with physical splinters. You get a needle, you get tweezers, you dig them out. But what do we do with splinters inside? What do we do with splinters in our brain? Because sometimes there are thoughts that come along, things that come along and they begin to lead us down a path of questioning and doubting and things like that. And there's these internal splinters and they get us into these places and they become infected and and they become irritable and and agitated. And how do we deal with the internal splinters? We know what to do with external ones, but what do we do with the internal ones? These thoughts that just make their way into our head and our brain and they just sit there and fester. And so we started a series called Splinters of Doubts. Let's recap real quick. I introduced maybe six uh, different splinters that could lead us not only to doubt, but to just kind of walk away from our faith altogether or to drift away from our faith altogether experiencing personal pain uh, some of us have gone through some really hard things and it can become this splinter in our head it's like man god's not good god doesn't love me i question those things the presence of evil in this world how can god be good and loving and in control when evil seems to run rampant around the world how can those be a reality if that one piques your interest, October 25th, we're uh, going to be talking about that. And Jim Thompson's going to be bringing the word that night. I'm so excited. Ha! Ha! Uh, cultural current, just like kind of observing what the culture is doing and watching it and then just jumping in and kind of getting swept away by the current. You, you may dip your toes in, but then all of a sudden before you know it, you are just downstream and drifting away from Jesus because the world is not in the direction of Jesus, conditional faith, you started this thing with some conditions, maybe you didn't even know you had, and then when Jesus didn't meet them, based on your pretext, you get angry and you start to doubt. Uh, Self-doubting, this idea of, of just doubting who you are and your identity and your worth and your value and your place in this world and your purpose. And then independence and pride, this idea that you don't need God, life would be better off without God, God is holding you back. We talked about that last one, last week, independence and pride. And tonight, we're going to be talking about self-doubting, the one on top of that, self-doubting. And so, self-doubting, I'm just going to define it this way. It could be interpreted a lot of ways, but I'm just going to define it like this. Are the things that I once believed to be true still true because I'm not sure that what I believe about myself is still true? I'm going to say it again. Are the things that I once believed to be true, still true? Because I'm not sure the things that I believed about myself are still true. And so in essence, it sounds like this. Uh, You know, I've been working with students a long time and I love students, I love the next gen. But one of the things I see all the time, every year, is that students go off to college and uh, they get lonely. In fact, statistically, loneliness is like the number one struggle of college students, believe it or not. And they're surrounded by people. I'm not talking about, I'm not, t- I'm not saying they don't have friends. I'm not saying they didn't join a frat or a sorority. <laughs> sorry about that voice. A frat, sorry. A frat, bro. I'm not saying they don't have friends. I'm not saying they don't live with roommates. I'm not, I'm not talking about the presence of people. You can be surrounded by people and still be lonely. The number one struggle of most college students is loneliness, statistically loneliness. And it has a lot to do with the idea of community. It has a lot to do with their understanding of who they are. And for the most part, a lot of us think we're cool until we're actually independent and we're on our own for the first time. And then loneliness starts to set in and it gets you to question a lot of things about yourself. You're confronted with a lot of things about yourself. A lot of people run from that, hide from that, rebel against that. They don't want to face who they really are. And so they tuck themselves away into different forms of living to avoid the reality of those things, because it hurts. You have to process some pain and stuff like that. And when we begin to question who we are, we begin to question who God is. It's a principle of life. This, this idea of self-doubting. So it could look like loneliness, questioning who we really are, who we thought we really are, and somehow that builds a bridge to, man, maybe God's not who he said he is, or who I thought he was. It could be some self-worth idea, like, man, if God is true and all that's true, and, man, he loves us and has grace and forgiveness, I'm not worthy of that, dude. I've, I've messed up. I've done some things. There's no way his grace could cover me. There's no way he could forgive me. I have blown it. I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve that. It could be linked to self-worth. It could be linked to purpose. Like, man, what's my place in this world? It's huge. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, man. I'm just kind of floating like a dandelion seed in the wind, man. I'm just getting taken over. I just feel feel so insecure in my placement. And those questions can get us to question who God is. So again, self-doubting. Are the things that I once believed to be true still true? Because I'm not sure that what I believed about myself is still true. This bridge between questioning who we are, connecting to questioning who God is. So this is what I'm going to call tonight, just for the sake of ease, do we have some Disney fans in the house? Okay, a few of you, this whole section back here, Disney haters, all man, this whole section, Brian Moore and Ford just gave double thumbs down. Wow, Ford, Ford, did I see you running today? Did you go on a jog today? I saw you, man, I saw you. Nice, dude, I I saw this afro like bouncing down the road and I was like, I think that's Ford, man. Wow, congratulations, way to stay fit, bro. You're killing it, man, killing the game. Disney, I'm gonna keep this simple. I'm gonna call this the Simba syndrome. Any Lion King fans in the house? (laughs) Again, very, this one section is very loyal, and everyone else is like, nah, fam, <laughs> like, nah. All right, so if you haven't seen Lion King, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis. And if you haven't seen the cartoon version, you should watch it. It's much better than the live action. <laughs> Old school. So there's this king of the lions named Mufasa. Thank you. Makes the hyenas shiver. Thank you, bro. Ooh. Mufasa, and he rules Pride Rock and the land surrounding Pride Rock. And he has a little son, and his name is Simba. Simba. Okay, so some of you have seen it. It Got a little embarrassed on the front end, but now you're getting into it. Okay. And Mufasa goes on walks with his son, and he takes him to these places, and he shows him, like, what belongs to him. Everything the light touches is your kingdom, Simba. And he talks to him about his inheritance, and that one day Mufasa will be gone, and he'll be the new king, and this is the cycle of life. And Pretty odd conversation to have with like a one-year-old lion, but he's having it, man, like one day I'll die, Simba, and, and Simba's like, what? And, but he has this conversation, and he's telling him a few things. Simba, here's who I am, Mufasa. Here's who you are, Simba, and this is what that means. This is not only who you are, but what's yours, and what it means for you, and so on and so forth. Spoiler alert, Mufasa dies. Yeah, uncle, Uncle Scar, Simba's uncle. Murdered Mufasa. A lot of drama in old Disney movies, man. And uh, actually still, I guess a lot of Disney movies. Man, they they love the drama. And Simba decides to run away. He's scared. He runs away. And he meets Timon and Pumbaa and they live it up. But what Simba does is basically he runs away from his old life, and he tries to take on this new identity and new character. He tries to avoid the pain of processing. He tries to avoid the realities of what was his. He doesn't want to be king anymore. He doesn't want pride rock. He just lets it go, and it goes to shambles. Uncle Scar comes in and runs the town and and destroys it all, and Simba runs from all of that. He tries to forget who he is. Run from your past. That's Simba's kind of mantra. But one day, some of you guys know, this crazy monkey meets Simba, Rafiki, and, uh, and Simba chases him, and, and Rafiki's like, I can introduce you to your father, and Simba's like, no, my father's dead, and he's like, no, he's not, follow me. and So they go on this chase together, and he leads them to this pool of tranquil water, and Rafiki's like, he's in the water, and Simba like, looks over, and Rafiki's like, see, he lives in you. And Simba's like, no, nah, that's just me, man. And then all of a sudden, this storm front rolls in, and this thundercloud turns into Mufasa, and Mufasa speaks from the clouds, pretty trippy. And, and Simba's like, dad! And Mufasa's like, Simba. <laughs> but he says this phrase, he says this phrase. As the cloud starts to roll back and exit, he goes, remember who you are, Simba. This idea of you have forgotten who you are, and the key to healing is remembering who you are. But the Simba syndrome is to run from who we are, to escape the pain, to escape the processing, to avoid all of that emotional baggage and to try to pick up some other life somewhere else. And Simba as he was running, he began to question a few things. He stopped believing in himself. He he started to doubt who he was and what belonged to him. He didn't feel fit to be king. He didn't feel like he could even save the pride lands if he were to go back and he started to doubt who his dad was. He had a a brokenness in his heart. It was leading him to bitterness, and he started to question even Mufasa. And the key to healing is to remember, Simba, who you are. Thunder. That was thunder. It's the Simba syndrome. Something has happened in our lives, and we begin doubting. Man, do I still believe the same things? Because I'm not even sure I believe the things about myself anymore. And maybe you, like Simba, start running, avoiding, hiding, escaping, instead of confronting and dealing with the pain. And the reality is, you can actually live this way for quite a long time. You can run for a while. You can live in the reality of running. You can escape the reality. But you're always running, and you always live in fear. You forget who you were, you start to question who you are, and you start to question who God is. Self-doubting can be this splinter in our mind that begins to fester. Do I still believe the things that I once thought were true are still true about God, about life? Because I don't even know if I still believe things about myself are still true. Self-doubting can get us to question not only ourselves and the world, but God. And I think the enemy, I think Satan, our great tempter, knows this. I think he knows if he can get us to question who we are, then ultimately he can get us to question who God is. Because the scriptures say that you and I were created in the image of God. Genesis 1:26 and 27 says, you are created, man and woman are created in the image of God. And if you start to forget that image and that imprint, if you start to question your identity, inevitably it leads you to question God's. And I think Satan knows this. We've got some identity crisis happening. And so I want to look at a story tonight. This is, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to trickle into Matthew chapter 4. But this is actually a story about Jesus. And it may surprise you to learn that I think Jesus was tempted to question who he was. Now, we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We believe that God, at a point in history, put on skin and bones and manifested from spirit into flesh and lived among us for 33 years. His name was Jesus. He pointed us back to the Father. He healed the broken way. He built a bridge so that we could be back with God. Yeah, Ginny Ann. Oh, I love love the yes. Yeah! But it may surprise you to learn that even Jesus, even Jesus, God in the flesh, who as a 12 year old kid knew who he was, that he was God's son, that he is God. As a 12 year old kid later, I think was tempted to start questioning, am I really that? Like really though? So let's start. Matthew chapter three, we're gonna be looking in verse 13. Jesus has a cousin, his name is John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptizes people and his name is John. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I love things in the Bible that just say what they are. Oh, your name's John and you baptize people? Let's just call him John the Baptist, man. Like, that's great. Jesus Christ, some of you may not know this. Christ is not his last name. Christ means Messiah. It's the same title. It's like Jesus the Messiah. Some of you guys just got shook right now. You're like, oh, Christ isn't on his mailbox? That's crazy. John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. He's baptizing people out in the wilderness. John's a wild man, dude, like wearing camel hair, eating honey, eating bugs, he's wild. And Jesus comes to him one day to be baptized. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to to the Jordan River to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, no, I need to be baptized by you, dude, you're Jesus. Like what, what business do I have baptizing you? It's gotta be the other way around. And you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fit, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus desires to be baptized. He didn't need to be in terms of his morality, like he's never sinned. He's never believed in himself and then followed that up with a baptism. He desires to be baptized so that he can relate to us. This is what the Old Testament would have asked for. He's doing this to show his humanity, to relate to us, to fulfill all righteousness, and John consented. He's like, all right, man. And when Jesus was baptized, he goes into the river, into the Jordan, and he comes up, and immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. This is like Mufasa to Simba here. The heavens were opened up, Clouds rolling over and this voice speaks from the heavens. Disney stole this idea. Come on, Walt. The heavens opened up to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. This bird just flies down and it rests on him. Lands right here. Holy Spirit. And then this voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus comes out of the water and this bird comes down and just descends on him. It's the spirit of God manifesting the image of peace. The dove going all the way back to the flood with Noah and the ark, the, the dove being the symbol of peace between God and Man, the spirit comes and rests on Jesus, and this voice, this Mufasa-style voice from heaven and these clouds billowing over, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So in this scene, you have God the Father, Son, and Spirit all manifest. Very rare scene in the Bible. This is like a staple. This is this landmark in the life of Jesus. All of the Trinity is present in this area. Spectators would have been, What's oh, happening? Who's talking? When it would have been wild, radical, amazing. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, immediately from there, Jesus was led by the Spirit by this dove into the wilderness, into this land of exile where nothing was around and no one was around. And Jesus was about to engage in a precursor to his earthly ministry. Before Jesus began his public ministry around the age of 30, he spent a month and a a half or so fasting in the wilderness kind of like his last trial to prepare him for his earthly ministry. He spent 40 days in this desolate place fasting, 40 days in this desolate place praying and seeking God, and 40 days in this desolate place being tempted by Satan. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is like this last trial, Trial of Jesus in his humanity to stand up to Lucifer himself before he can begin his earthly public ministry. This is it to prepare him 40 days of fasting alone to be tempted by the devil. Now, I just want to pause here and say, I believe there, I believe. Satan is at work in this world. I believe he is the source of evil. I think he disrupts God's plans in this world, on this earth. I think he hates Jesus. I think he hates the fact that we're even in this room tonight. I think his whole agenda is to destroy your life and wreck your life and cause you pain. Peter, the follower of Jesus, would later write that Satan roams this earth like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's just on the prey. He is on the hunt for his prey to devour. you. And while his temptations don't cease and his work in this world is always disrupting the agenda of God, I do think there are certain times in our life when we are more susceptible to his temptations. You know, like sometimes we can give up a pretty good fight and we can resist and through the power of the spirit we can have victory over sin and it's beautiful. Like, God, yes, Jesus in me, ha, Satan, pow. But other times I think we're pretty susceptible. I think we are most prone to sin, hear me, and tell me if this feels familiar. I think we're most prone to sin when we are hungry. My wife Oh man, I love her. I love her so much. My boo. <laughs> my wife is hangry. Like she like real hangry when your hunger turns to anger. And I love her with all of my heart, but man when she's hungry and I'm around her, I don't I don't like her. Like I love you boo, but I don't like you right now. Like she is hangry, you know what I mean? Anybody struggle with that in here? I think we're prone to sin when we're hungry. Nathan just pointed to Brindley. No, uh, no, Brindley, I think we're prone to sin when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and bored. These five categories, I'm gonna say them again. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and bored. We give some pretty good fights to temptation. We resist temptation. But think in your life of the categories, man. When you're sitting at home and you're just hungry, like, dude, I'm hungry. Or you're tired. You haven't been sleeping well. You've been staying up late playing Warzone, watching TikTok, man. It's like you're. It's like 11 p.m. You're like, oh, it's just a few TikToks, and then you look over. It's 3 a.m. You're like, oh my gosh, you're tired. Your sleep rhythm's all off. COVID's got you all messed up. Virtual learning, back in school, out of school, it's got you all messed up. Angry. And there's been some hurt in your life, some pain, some friendships are disintegrating. Somebody talked about you poorly or backstabbed you or gossiped about you. Man, you're angry. Like, you feel it. You're lonely. You just feel alone. Like, you feel like you don't really have friends. You don't really feel understood. You just want companionship. You want to be known, but you don't feel that way. Or you're just bored. It's like, dude, what am I supposed to do? What do I do right now? hungry angry lonely tired and bored you guys know yourselves you know the past times that you've sinned was it in one of these five categories like we are prone to sin in these five categories because we are flesh we are weak man and in these categories it's like we want to fill something in us and all of a sudden the sin starts to look really nice like ooh, let me just fill that little hole in my heart real quick Jesus has fasted for 40 days in a desolate place, and Matthew says he was hungry at the end of verse 2 there. I would be willing to bet that Jesus was at least four of these, if not five. I think he was hungry. I think he was lonely, tired, and maybe bored. Potentially he was angry. I don't know. I think Jesus had all the circumstances here that we are so prone to sin in. And I think Satan knows this. And at the end of that 40 days, it's like this final push by the tempter, by Satan. He comes up to him, verse three, the tempter comes to Jesus and he says to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You guys ever, has anyone ever fasted even for like a day, like 24 hours without food? I know it's like really cool right now and Like, it's a fad to, like, intermittent fast based on my body type, (laughs) right? Like, I know it's cool right now, but anybody ever fasted for, like, spiritual reasons? Like, man, I'm going to go a day without eating so I can learn dependency on God and gratitude for my food. Dude, 24, you think you're strong? 24 hours will wreck you, man. You'll start craving the weirdest things. Like, you know what I haven't had in years? (laughs) A Hardy's biscuit. (laughs) Like, you just start craving weird stuff. Jesus has gone 40 days, 40 days without nourishment and sustenance. Dependency on God. And here comes Satan, and he says, he whispers in Jesus' ear, if you're the Son of God, look at these stones right here. You're God, man. You've got the power. Old Testament, God turned stones into water. You're God in the flesh. You could turn them into bread. Old Testament, God made bread rain from heaven. You could make bread out of these rocks. Come on, you're hungry. Satan is tempting Jesus to depend on his own powers in this moment rather than on God. See, Jesus does have the power to do this, but it's not time to do it yet. In this time of fasting, it's this trial of dependency on God, and Jesus knows this. Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, dude, I don't need these rocks. I got God's word. That's my bread. See, the first temptation of Satan was this. He tempts Jesus physically at a very vulnerable moment. He tempts Jesus physically. In other words, you're hungry. Why don't you just do what feels good in this moment? Man, how good would that bread be? Some nice sourdough. Some kind of flaky baguette with just the right crunch rolling off the bun. How did you even cook it? You're God. I don't know. Jesus is hungry. Satan comes along with a physical temptation. Do what feels good. Can you relate? Man, I'm lonely right now. Why don't you do what feels good? Why don't you fill that hole real quick in your heart? I just want companionship why don't you just take the immediate shortcut why don't you just do what feels good in the moment come on it'll fill you up you i'm angry right now why don't you just do what feels good and tell that person off oh it'll feel so good they deserve it I think we're prone to sin in certain categories. And Jesus is in one of these vulnerable, multiple of these categories. And Satan comes along with this physical temptation. You're hungry. You want food. Why don't you just do it? It'll feel so good. Jesus says, bread is not my food. God's word is my food. God's word is my food. Satan knows he can't get him physically. So he takes him to this next temptation. Verse five, then the devil took him... To the holy city jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple the 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 epicenter of of spirituality in the world for judaism for relationship with god he takes him and sits him on top of the temple and he says to him if you are the son of god throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and then also On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot on a stone. These were prophecies made about Jesus in the Old Testament. In other words, Satan is saying, they won't let you get hurt. I took you to the highest place, and if you throw yourself down right now, you know the angels will swoop down out of heaven and save you before you hit the ground. What a show that would be. The first temptation was physical. Turn these stones into bread. The second temptation is emotional. Satan says, man, if you're really God's son, throw yourself off this high place because you know the angels will protect you. You know they'll swoop down. The second temptation is emotional. He's getting Jesus to question God's love, God's protection. It's like you know it to be true, Jesus, but are you willing to put it to the test? Like, like, we think things, we believe things, we know things about God, but when all of a sudden we're confronted with, like, man, would I, really, would I really take the leap of faith and do it? We're like, ah, man, would God really do that? Would he really protect me right now? Like, I know angels would come and save me because I'm Jesus. I'm God in the flesh. The scriptures speak about it. But would they? Satan takes Jesus to a place where he can question God's love. Would God really take care of you like that? Would God really save you? Come on, you know they will. Jesus responds, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God your, to the test. Third temptation, Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him, all these I will give you if you just fall down and worship me. Now this is interesting because Jesus created the world, created everything in it, created the very tree that Zacchaeus climbed up. Like I'm not impressed by you climbing, do I put the tree there? Like Jesus has made all this. And furthermore, all of the kingdoms in this earth already belong to Jesus. Like he's the ruler supreme. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, like He is it of the cosmos and galaxy upon galaxy. It already belongs to Him. However, Jesus' path temporarily was to the cross. The book of Philippians says that because Jesus lowered Himself and emptied Himself, that God elevated Him and gave Him the name above all names so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Jesus first has to go to the cross before he can go back to the throne. And Satan knows this. See, what Satan is doing here is a shortcut. It's not that they didn't already belong to Jesus. It's that Satan is saying, hey, you can have them back without the cross. You don't have to go through the pain of the cross. You don't have to go through the ridicule and humiliation. I will give you the world right now if you just worship me the shortcut of the cross. You don't have to go through that. The first temptation is physical. Turn these rocks into bread. And the second temptation is emotional. Would God really protect you? He would. Come on, he would. Go ahead and prove it, though. The third temptation is spiritual. You don't need God. I can give you the kingdoms of the world. I can give you glory and power. All you have to do is bow down right here and worship You don't need the Father, I'll give it to you. Man, Jesus responds. He snaps back, he says, be gone Satan, for it's written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. All three temptations, all three temptations Satan was manipulating or tweaking what was already true, the word of God or the reality of who Jesus is. Satan is masterful in his temptations because he presents it in such a way that it seems true because he's derived it out of truth. He just twists it and distorts it. But Jesus responds back with the word of God all three times. And on that, the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus was tempted to physically, emotionally, and spiritually and resist it all. But I think, I think, I think, you know, I've heard this passage taught so many times and I always hear the three temptations of Jesus, the three temptations. I think there's a fourth temptation. It's not physical, it's not emotional, it's not spiritual. I think it's internal. I think it's a matter of identity. Because again, going back to our whole idea for the night, self-doubting, if if we begin to question things we once believed about ourselves, eventually we can start to question things we once believed about God. Look at the first two temptations. This is the phrase that Satan couches those temptations in. Are you ready? Chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 6. He says, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God. In other words, prove it. Come on. Turn these stones into bri- Prove it. Now, this may seem like a silly temptation. Like, come on, dude. Would Jesus honestly doubt that? I mean, I have to believe as cunning and as crafty as, as Satan is, and I'm not trying to give him too much credit, but I don't want to pretend like he's not. I have to believe if this is the package, it was a smart move. Like, it, like Jesus was susceptible to this temptation. And furthermore, coming out of Matthew chapter 3, what just happened? Jesus is baptized, and the Trinity is present, and the dove comes down, and the voice cracks from the heavens, this is my son! And then right after that, Jesus goes and fasts for 40 days, and the first temptation he hears is, if that was really true, then prove it. If you're really the son of God, show me. If you're really the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself off a high place. The angels will protect you. Come on, prove it. And I just wonder if Jesus spent some nights in the wilderness, hungry and, and tired and lonely and bored and maybe angry and susceptible to his humanity, feeling weak and beginning to question maybe. Man, am I really? Like, am I really God's Like, is that? Is that true? And some of us can go a few days without food and we start to question reality a little bit. You know what I mean? Like Jesus is fasting for a month and a half on his own, away from people, excluded from community and fellowship and interaction. He's on his own. His only company is Satan tempting him. And he plants this thought in his head. If you're really the son, why would he tempt him this way? He tempts him with self-doubt. Because if we start doubting who we are, we might start doubting who God is. I think the tempter gets us to question who God says we are. I think the tempter gets us to question who God says we are. Remember, you're made in the image of God. His DNA, his imprint is on you. I think the tempter wants you to forget about that. He gets us to question who God says we are so that, so that, he can get us to question who God says he is. See, if we start to question who God says we are, like man, am I really beloved? Have I really been lavished with grace? Have I really been forgiven? Is God's mercies really inexhaustible for me? Is His grace undepletable for me? Am I really His child? Have I really been adopted Him? Am I really a co-heir with Jesus? Is Jesus really my brother and God is really my Father? Is all this true? Have I really been filled with the Spirit and given blessing upon blessing? And if we start to question those things about ourselves, Then we start to trickle that thought up, man, is God really who he is? Like, is he really good and loving and in control? Man, I just don't know about all this. The tempter gets us to question who God says we are so that he can get us to question who God says he is. Self-doubting can become a splinter of the mind. And I think Satan knows this. Man, if you're really the son of God, God just declared it from the heavens. What do you mean, if? But in moments of vulnerability, hungry, angry, tired, lonely, and bored, in moments of brokenness and weakness, those questions start to rattle around. Am I really? Did I hear that? There were witnesses, but were there? Did I imagine? If you really are. I want to play this movie clip uh, from a movie called Blood Diamond. It's, It's a little old, 2006. Maybe you guys haven't seen it, but... Basically, the premise of the movie is there's this uh, band of renegades in Africa, and they, and they swarm these villages. It's still happening today. It's heartbreaking and sad, but they swarm these villages, and they kidnap children, and they brainwash these children. And they throw rifles into their hands, and they make them do unbelievable things, evil things, as an initiation. This is how we brainwash you. We not only expose you to evil, we make you commit the evil. And these young, impressionable impressionable kids just hear this message, like, you're bad, you're broken, do this. And they become kind of mindless, child soldiers, still happening today. But in this movie, this uh, one kid is kidnapped, and his father goes on a hunt for him. He tries to find him all throughout the movie. And by the time he finds him, the kid's already been indoctrinated and kind of had this poison dripped into his brain about who he is. And there's this really intense scene between the father and his son. And I want to play this clip here. So if we turn our attention to the screens, it's powerful. I didn't even know how to receive a hug. Like he's, he's so far gone from who he once was. And his father steps forward. And did you notice what he starts saying? He, he started reminding him of his old life. Like, Dia, you're from this tribe. You love soccer. Your mom waits for you. The new baby waits for you. The cows wait for you. The wild dog who wants no one but you. He starts reminding him of his old life. And then he starts reminding him of his identity. I know they made you do bad things. And they told you you were a bad boy. But you're my son. I'm your father. I want you to come home again. He steps forward and embraces him. This picture from this movie of a father and his son is so gospel-saturated. It's like God is speaking to us, and we've forgotten who we are, and we've forgotten who he is, and we've moved so far away from him, and we're starting to question all sorts of things, and the splinter of doubt, self-doubting, doubting ourselves, and doubting God, and we've kind of been brainwashed into thinking all these toxic things, and God is standing there saying, hey, 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 you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. Come home to me and be mine again. Has forgetting who you are begun to lead you far away from who God is? The tempter gets us to question who God says we are so that eventually we start to question who God says he is. Jesus experienced this same temptation in the wilderness. Man, if you're really the son of God, You think you heard that from the heavens? You think that was spoken over? No, man, prove it. Do something and show your power. Show that you're the son. God stands and says, I wait for you. I know the world's told you you're bad, that you've done bad things, but you're my son and you're my daughter. And I still Let us remember who we are, who God says we are, and who God says he is. And if you're far from God, if you've been wondering, come home. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. You experienced every temptation that we have. You sympathize with us and our weaknesses. You know what we go through, you know what we think, you know what we're afraid of. And you know, deep down in our hearts, a lot of us question this whole thing. We feel so insecure about who we are. We lack so much confidence in you. We wonder if it's all even real. We look in the mirror and some of us are disgusted and some of us are fearful some of us just feel so empty and hollow jesus remind us who we are your brothers and sisters filling this room tonight and remind us who you are king seated on the throne the whole world belongs to you and you went to the cross to do it we love you jesus we pray that you would heal the splinter in our minds.